0: Welcome to season three of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and to kick off our third season, a special COVID-19 edition with UHN's Executive Vice President of Science and Research, Dr. Brad Waters. In this special edition, we discuss UHN's leading edge COVID research and treatment discoveries, the triumph of basic science to create the COVID-19 vaccines, and how and when does this pandemic end? Dr. Brad Waters, welcome to season three of Behind the Breakthrough. Hi, Christian. Great to be back with you. First off, I have to say props to you for calling it on vaccine development. It was a year ago. You and I sat down to launch season two of the podcast. And at the end of our conversation, you actually predicted we would have vaccines in the arms of the general public early in the year 2021. And you were off just by a few weeks. What gave you such certainty back then? Well, you know, it
1: certainly wasn't just me, Christian. I think the vaccines uh, development has been probably the biggest highlight of all the work that's gone on and in terms of its effectiveness. And I think we've all been really stunned by how great these vaccines are and how effective they are. And it is a triumph of science. I think, you know, perhaps one of the greatest examples of the importance of investing in science as, as to how it can bring real impact to society. I think what, you know, what really got me confident around the ability to deliver an effective vaccine was just the extraordinary collective effort and speed and willingness to take risk that was shared amongst science and society and government. You know, it was that joint effort that really helped propel this.
0: Well, let's unpack that a bit because, you know, this historic scientific feat unfolded in a way that's really fascinating. It all starts, I would imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it all starts with the fact that the genetic sequence of the new coronavirus was published January 11th, 2020, to be specific. So that was available to scientists around the world. Talk to us about the significance and precedent of that first step.
1: Well, it was very important. And uh, as uh, everyone knows, the outbreak of... The coronavirus of COVID started in China, in Wuhan, and it was scientists there that initially isolated this virus very soon after that outbreak occurred. uh, They sequenced the virus, now known as SARS-CoV-2, and they released that sequence publicly to the world. And they did so at at somewhat of their own risk for themselves because of regulations and and control that happens in China. But it was essential because it gave everyone in the world that sequence, which did a couple of things. Number one is it allowed us to test people for being infected. We could develop an assay. These are known as the PCR tests. It's kind of amazing. Everyone in society knows how these things work now. (laughs) Um, But a PCR test was developed based on that sequence so that we could tell if people were being infected. But it also became the tool to create the vaccines. And, you know, as soon as that virus uh, sequence was released, the vaccine companies and academic groups and many, many people around the world got to work immediately to create vaccines.
0: And talk to us about the spirit of collaboration, because I imagine that was crucial to anything going forward at that time, right? Yeah, there were many different avenues of
1: of collaboration. There was, you know, academic collaboration, there was open data sharing, Uh, You know, I think it's another, you know, feature of the pandemic is the degree to which information has been rapidly shared, the use of preprint servers on BioArchive and MedArchive so that data could get into the hands of decision makers, of colleagues, of governments to use that information in ways that they could make decisions. And the places where we've gotten into trouble during this pandemic are where we've made decisions without scientific evidence and having good evidence having good data has not only brought us new treatments new ways of uh, caring for patients new ways for testing patients but also the development of the vaccines themselves you know so that collaboration starts among scientists uh, but it rapidly became collaborations with biotech startups with pharma with manufacturers and with government who all uh, contributed to the development through risk sharing through funding um, and through scientific input and progress.
0: And I understand initiatives such as say Warp Speed in the U.S. decided to spread their vaccine research dollars around and they didn't want to focus on old school inactivated virus vaccine. What's your sense of what the thinking was there?
1: Well, I think they hedged their bets. Um, They looked at, you know, a number of different opportunities and I think invested in groups that uh, showed potential promise. And we had really... Two approaches, you know, I think the classic kinds of vaccines that are based on inactivated virus or viral proteins, which have shown, you know, good efficacy and many, many other kinds of infections and diseases. But we also had these new RNA and DNA encoded vaccines and especially the, the RNA vaccines. These are the first effective and, and clinically approved RNA vaccines uh, to be developed to date. And, you know, they've shown extraordinary effectiveness and safety. And, you know, over 4 billion people have gotten one of these vaccines around the world now. So it really is kind of incredible uh, within a, a year that that has happened. But it was based on data and progress and science that has been achieved over the last three decades over the last 30 years or even further going back you know this includes science in lipid particle nanotechnology contributed here from canada in vancouver it includes the development of modified rna as a delivery tool and you know that was the real breakthrough that made all of these possible but that breakthrough happened back in the 90s And, you know, it's taken this long to move that towards clinical application and clinical development. But we got lucky here because, you know, this technology was ready. It's a kind of technology that allows for a very rapid response because of the nature of the the technology itself. Once we had the sequence of the virus, you know, this could be developed quite quickly and it's proven to be, you know, enormously useful and of great future potential in, in a number of areas.
0: Let's talk about that origin story of the mRNA-based vaccines. And Katalin Kariko, the Hungarian biochemist, who's credited with being the first scientist to actually work with RNAs going back to the late 80s, if that basic science had not been there to, to begin this, would any of this have been happening?
1: No, no, it is. You know, it's, it's like all great scientific impacts. It starts with a scientific discovery. And Dr. Curico in particular was extremely passionate and motivated about uh, seeing through this opportunity. She recognized that RNA, mRNA delivery could be an extremely effective approach to the treatment of a number of different diseases. But there were huge challenges at the time, and not many people believed that it would be possible to deliver RNA in an effective way. And there was two principal reasons why that was challenging. The first of that is inherent instability of the RNA itself. It's very unstable, it gets degraded very quickly, the idea of sort of injecting it and expecting it to, to survive long enough to have an impact, you know, really seemed impossible. And the second part is that the delivery of RNA itself serves a little bit as a danger signal to our immune system. And our immune system recognizes the RNA and it sees it as foreign and um, as a danger signal and it mounts an immune response and will attack and, and remove cells where RNA may have been uh, delivered. And so those are the two big challenges. And that's what she solved. She figured out a way, you know, with a colleague that she worked closely with that believed in her at Penn.
0: Penn being?
1: It's the University of Pennsylvania. And what she did um, is she modified the RNA in such a way to kind of hide it from the immune system. So it no longer created this activated danger signal so they could survive. And it also, that modification also stabilized the RNA. And that was kind of the breakthrough. And, and that paper was published, but it also didn't get a lot of attention at the time. You know, it didn't even get attention in her home university. She she struggled with promotion. She struggled with getting funding. She wrote grants. Couldn't get grants you know there were huge uh incentives for her to do something else or to leave or to To move somewhere else. Huge incentives to do so. But her her passion was driven by the scientific opportunity. And it's really, you know, it's that part that makes great scientists all over the world is that true desire to, uh, to do something meaningful from a scientific discovery perspective. And thank goodness she did, because she really is credited with that. But there's another Canadian connection here. And when she published that paper, it didn't get a lot of attention. But one of the people that did read that paper and get excited was Derek Rossi. Uh, This is a Toronto native who at the time I think was a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford but started his own lab at Harvard and he saw this as a potential way to create stem cells. He was interested in stem cell biology and everyone was trying to you know to produce uh, stem cells and reprogram cells into stem cells and we were worried about introducing DNA because that could modify the genome and he thought, well, I could use RNA instead and use that as a way to reprogram and create a stem cell. So this is one potential use of this RNA technology. And he got excited about that and talked to a couple of his Harvard colleagues, I think Tim Springer and Bob Langer. And both of these uh, uh, individuals at Harvard are both serial entrepreneurs. They're also fantastic scientists. Bob Langer has a 1,000 patents, has licensed 400 of them, so has created hundreds of companies. And what he recognized is that the ability to create stem cells was one opportunity, but there were huge other opportunities if you can successfully deliver RNA. So this sort of brought to attention to, you know, to others, this idea of what RNA could be used for. And so they created a company a month later and they called it based on modified RNA and they called it Moderna. And that's uh, that's the history of Moderna. So, you know, it was a Canadian that helped create that company. And it's been enormously successful. I was looking at uh, stock price recently, and uh, the pats or or had reached almost a market capitalization of two hundred billion dollars, bigger than Merck, you know, some of the other giant pharmaceutical companies. So incredible run for them over the last couple of years.
0: What's amazing, I guess, to me is you know, if Dr. Carrico hadn't persisted over the decades, and perhaps if Dr. Rossi hadn't seen the potential for it, this might not come about. Like, how did people back in the early days, you know, perhaps when the genetic sequence was first published back in January of 2020, how do people know all of a sudden to turn to Dr. Carrico's
1: work? So Dr. Carrico's work didn't end with publishing that paper. Uh, She wanted to see that have clinical impact. And she continued to work towards there. And there was a company in Germany that had been started by a husband and wife group that was interested in immunotherapy. And they created a spin-out that they've called BioNTech. And they actually hired Dr. to come and oversee their RNA platform technology. And they saw from the very beginning, unlike Moderna when it got started, they saw from the beginning the potential for RNA as a vaccine. And that's what they wanted to use it for. So that, uh, that company was in place. They had already developed a few different RNA vaccine candidates. They were moving through and looking at different opportunities. And when COVID hit in Wuhan in January and that sequence was published, Moderna and BioNTech both realized that they had a huge opportunity here to go after it. And that's what they did. There's some other important science here that that is also important to the success. And having the sequence is important, but it's not enough. The reason why they could develop these effective vaccines so rapidly was also based on our understanding of coronaviruses. We knew those sequence and the kinds of proteins that the coronavirus encoded. We knew that the spike protein on the coronavirus was essential for those viruses to enter and infect cells. And we actually knew a lot about the structure of that spike protein. It had been solved. The crystal structure had been solved. You know, We knew a lot about how it gets activated and how it works, the functional parts of it. This has been studied for years and years in the structural biology community. And that understanding is what you know made the, these companies realize that they knew what part of that virus to go after. They knew the spike protein, and in particular, the receptor binding domain, the part that binds to the the sticky part uh, on the cell would be the area to go after with the vaccine. And so they both chose the same target. They both made a very similar vaccine uh, with their RNA technology after that. And, uh, and, you know, and both have been extremely effective.
0: Could you ever have envisioned the vaccines in less than 12 months, you know, from development to trial to approval, being so effective at, at reducing the, the severity of this virus?
1: You know, I think uh, I was stunned by the progress and the speed at which this was done. So, you know, it, typically a, a new vaccine can take five to six years uh, for development. You know, I was reading earlier that uh, Moderna had its vaccine candidate in vials for human tests, uh, future human testing, 42 days after that viral sequence was released. And those clinical trials of phase one started very early. The phase two got ready. The phase three got ready. You know, they had to build manufacturing capability, manufacturing plants, and hundreds of millions, billions of doses being produced. So, you know, the the logistical part of this, you know, they ran terrific trials, both of those companies, phase one trials, phase two trials, very large phase three trials. They did that in a you know in, in a way that uh, convinced the regulators of the quality of the impact, and also on the safety of of these vaccines in in those studies. And I think it's been important too that the scientific community has continued to study the effectiveness of the vaccines uh, once they've been approved and once they're into the general population. And, you know, even a phase of a a very large, these very large phase three trials, 60,000 people in those trials to demonstrate the effectiveness, you know, is still a small number when we talk about inoculating billions of people. And the extremely rare potential side effects of these vaccines that we've heard about. The one in a million, the one in a hundred thousand, you can't detect these in phase three trials. So you need to continue to monitor safety, effectiveness. We've seen the evolution of new variants of the virus. We're not dealing with the same one that caused disease initially in Wuhan. Is a very, very different kind of virus now. And so we need to continue to study that and the effectiveness of, of the vaccines. And, and there may be new new versions of vaccines that are required to, you know, to continue to provide protection to people.
0: And my understanding is that's sort of the elegance of the mRNA platform, if that's what you want to call it, in that you can continue to tweak its efficacy based on, say, the variants that are emerging.
1: That's right. So the variants of the virus are coding changes in their genome. And you know what happens is that spike protein, there's a change in it that occurs. It makes it a little bit more sticky or it improves its ability to get into cells or may improve its ability to replicate, whatever, whatever that is. And those changes that improve its transmission can also make the virus or the vaccine less effective because it's binding to that same region. And so if, it, if there's a change that's made there that makes our, the antibodies, our bodies are producing less effective, it means we may need a new vaccine encoding the new version of that spike that's in the variant, so that our immune system will make better antibodies against that version of it. But that's what's so you know incredible about the RNA platform is that you know once you know what that change is, it's a pretty straightforward process to produce a, a vaccine, a, you know, a modified vaccine that now produces a, a you know a slightly tweaked version that's the version carried by the, the current strain of the virus.
0: I want to try and take you back to a day, December 14th, 2020. You are part of the first group at the UHM uh, Michener Institute when a healthcare worker is the first to get the vaccine in Canada. Take us back to that moment, you know, knowing what it took in terms of the medical research and the role of basic science and getting to the world to that day. What did that moment and and achievement mean to you that morning?
1: Well, it was very exciting. Uh, I I do remember that day very clearly, we were over there and we were actually waiting for clearance from Pfizer because they had to uh, ensure that the the vaccine that traveled to us through the airplanes and through the, you know, onto the cargo vans and got to us had maintained its cold storage requirements. There was a lot, you know, a huge amount of careful monitoring happening back then. And we were all in that building waiting for that call to come in I and mean, clear it. We were all set up. We had the syringes drawn, and we were ready to go. I mean, it was sort of delayed and delayed. We finally got the call. So you know, a brave long term care worker um, had stepped up and volunteered to come first and uh, she got the vaccine. And for us, it, you know, it was exciting in a number of ways. One was sort of the sort of the triumph of science and the ability to get a, a safe vaccine now being administered in Canada before the end of, of 2020. Really kind of amazing. But it was also exciting because it, it said to us that, the, you know, the, the end of this, the really, really tough part of the coronavirus might be in sight. And, you know, we've been dealing with it since almost a year at that time, had caused huge disruption, to, of course, to society, to many populations, but also to research itself. And we were very much looking forward to being able to get back to a more normal work environment, a more normal society, and get back on the real, the the challenges of, of dealing with all the other science and research that we are doing. So definitely an inspirational day. Turned out to be just the first part of a, a huge logistical challenge of delivering this. <laughs> the goalposts keep changing, but, you know, I think Canada's done extremely well. And if you look at our current vaccination rates, uh, Canada really is, is either at the top of the world or leading um, amongst the world in delivering that. I, th- I think it's a reflection of Canadians belief in science I think uh, we've managed to quell or dismiss some uh, more of the misinformation that's out there it's really disappointing to see what's going on in many places but you know upwards of uh, 80-85% of eligible uh, individuals vaccinated it's great and here at UHN you know at the moment our staff are about 95% vaccinated we want to get everybody we hope everyone steps up and does that but this is creating a much uh, of course safer environment for everyone
0: That one shadow, I guess you could say on that light at the end of the tunnel is a a safe vaccine for kids under 12. Do you have any sense or insider knowledge on when that might be available for kids under 12?
1: Well, there's, of course, active work going on. There are clinical trials um, taking place that have actually made, much of that is completed. The FDA is even reviewing some of that data now. They've gone back to the companies and asked for, I think, a bit of extensions and additional other data. They want to make sure these are, of course, extremely safe. Kids are not as at risk as uh, older adults are at getting sick, but they still remain at risk. And they also represent, you know, a large number of people in our population that will keep, continue to support transmission and, and prevent us from reaching a, a point where you know COVID will go away. So the variants have really changed the game in terms of what's needed to to control this. We see in you know the summer of 2021 cases are higher than they were in the summer of 2020 and they've rebounded quicker this sort of uh, fourth wave is happening earlier in 2021 even with 75-80% of our you know eligible population vaccinated and that's the difference in these in the variants is that they are just far, far more transmissible. People carry much higher viral loads. And my advice to everyone is that, you know, you have sort of two choices to make. You can get vaccinated and get the spike protein, or you can get infected and get COVID. And that's, you know, I I don't think that many people who are unvaccinated will avoid this at some point.
0: Do you have a sense though, Brad, of when the vaccine might be in the arms of or available for kids under twelve.
1: Well, I think it, you know it could be it could be relatively soon. I think there you know there are some that are looking at the data that's available and it may be enough for the FDA to make a call on that. So that, that could happen within a, within months. And certainly, it's the five to eleven year olds that they're looking at. The low five is going to be not until next year, but the five to eleven year olds, which are our kids in elementary school, you know that group are hoping that there might be something a little bit later on this fall. It's not going to be in time for school and you know there's going to be risk associated with that and uh, everything we can do from a public health measure to continue to slow transmission we know a lot more than we did a year ago there are lots of tools in the toolbox to help uh, do that and it's up to the policymakers and and governments and so on to you know to make sure we create a safe as environment as possible for those kids
0: this miracle of science the creation of these vaccines to battle covid 19 do do you care to speculate on whether any of this is nobel prize worthy
1: Well, I think it's going to uh, certainly they're going to get nominations and the committee is going to be able to make that decision. Um, It's certainly amongst the kinds of discoveries that where where this prize is awarded that, uh, you know, could be considered. It's uh, it's had obviously a huge impact on society so far. It's it's a vaccine against one virus, but I think the platform has massive potential for other opportunities. And we're even starting to see some of those come out now.
0: Well, and to that end, the discovery of mRNA uh, in terms of a safe vaccine delivery vehicle and effective, what's your take on what all that means for the future of vaccine development for for other diseases?
1: Well, there's lots of work going on already. I mean, the reason Moderna is worth $200 billion is not because of COVID. It's because of the other things that they may do. And they're working on flu vaccines, universal flu vaccines. They're working on cancer vaccines and other companies are also using RNA as a platform to deliver you know other kinds of RNA-encoded drugs. They can deliver CRISPR, can be used for gene editing, gene therapy, so you know the opportunities and potential for this kind of platform really is is very big.
0: A bit of a reality check though I guess is that we still have a pandemic, people are exhausted, healthcare workers are burnt out, and it just never seems to end. What's your assessment of the life cycle of this coronavirus? Is it going to just keep spinning off new variants that are more dangerous than the last? Or will it eventually peter out and die?
1: Well, it's hard to make predictions on that, I think, Christian. You know, uh, we all kind of thought this was a pretty stable virus until for the first 10 months up until October or November. There was a lot of transmission, uh, lots of virus, and we didn't really see any major new variants emerged that, that behaved a lot different than the other ones. There's a kind of always a background change going on because, you know, viruses make mistakes when they replicate. And so they, they sort of sample opportunities to, to change. But we didn't see a lot of impact of that, uh, those changes happening and, until around November. And
0: November of...
1: November of 2020, and it was in December that I kind of really got worried about this and, you know, the potential of a variants of emerging that might be more infectious and pose the danger to the current approaches to public health restrictions. Um, and so we started a program here at UHN together with colleagues at Mount Sinai and also at OICR to systematically look for new variants, you know, in those that were being tested at our facilities, at our joint Mount Sinai and UHN lab. And it was based actually on a technology that's been developed here in Toronto by Jeff Rana and Ben Blanco and others for a completely different purpose. But it ended up being an opportunity to repurpose this, to allow us to kind of sequence in an efficient and and cost-effective way, every positive case that we found. So we started to do that. And in December, it was actually right around Christmas, we had people in the lab collecting samples from all the positive cases, but a thousand people that had tested positive for COVID over two or three days. And we decided to go and look for those variants. And we sequenced all of those cases. And we saw in January, the first Variants appear. We saw both the UK variant, what's known now as the Alpha variant, uh, as well as the variant from Brazil and from South Africa, and those are the very first versions of the of that that had been seen in Ontario. And we continued to track that, and we saw this huge, rapid rise of the B one one seven, the Alpha variant, come from the UK, and within a few months, that became essentially a hundred percent of the cases. It, it had a complete replacement of the. Sort of the Wuhan uh, SARS CoV 2 with this new variant. And there was lots of data emerging at the time saying that the variant had about a 40% increase in transmission. It created more hospitalization cases. It was certainly worse. And I, I think at the time we realized that variants were, you know, going to continue to emerge and were going to be a problem, and we've seen that happen. And there's an entire network now uh, across Canada that's funded by the CIHR. We've got a, a leadership team that I sit on in, uh, at the federal level with the Ministry of Health that is meeting. We meet every week, looking at the evidence of the changes in in the variants here in Canada and around the world, and, and tracking this. And you know, I think what what we, we still don't know and still worry a lot about is whether or not a variant would emerge that would make our current immunity created by vaccines or previous exposure uh, really ineffective. And, you know, I, I think to a large extent, and I listen to the immunologists and the, and the virologists uh, discuss around this, I think they're cautiously optimistic that, you know, we're even, even if a sort of a breakthrough kind of virus strain emerged, the kinds of immunity that we have, it's, you know, both our humoral antibody, you know, our antibody immunity, but also our T-cell immunity and and cell-based immunity uh, will continue to provide some protection. And so you may get infected, but you won't sort of suffer a, a severe disease. And even in the breakthrough infections we're seeing now, there are people who you know, have had the vaccine. It's fantastic, but it's not perfect. You know, 95% sounds great, but 5% of a large number of people is a large number of people. And the breakthrough infections, fortunately, are also much less severe, very unlikely to land you in the hospital or, or make you really sick. So this virus is gonna be here for a very, very long time, forever, perhaps. And it's gonna cause colds, it's gonna cause some disease, it's gonna cause some severe disease, like the flu does, like other, Coronaviruses can in, in certain situations. But what's really important is to get a, a base level of immunity in everyone against this. And that means going and getting the vaccine
0: now. Well, that's sobering. We've lived with viruses since the,
1: the dawn of time. And, you know, the colds you get every year, that's a coronavirus. And there may have been a time, you know, hundreds or, you know, many, many, many years ago where that caused also a lot of severe disease. And, you know, eventually it created a, a level of immunity that uh, that we sort of carry with us now. But,
0: you know, I so think there, that's- really, there's no secret to I mean, I guess the goal really now has to be the field of downsized dreams or we somehow manipulate this from a pandemic to an endemic situation where it's pockets that we can more tightly manage. And really, I guess the pathway to get there is no different from day one, which is still masking, still physical distancing and getting vaccinated.
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's getting vaccinated, number one. All the other public health measures are slowing down transmission so that people don't get sick, that we don't create large numbers of cases. It buys us time to get that immunity. But if you look around the world, there are still 600, 700,000 new cases reported every day around the world. You know, Canada, we're extremely fortunate to have this vaccine and, and to be able to deliver it to our to our population. But there are huge numbers of people around the world that don't have that access. And, you know, the, the virus will will continue to circulate. It will continue to spread. And, you know, the idea of elimination isn't something anyone's even thinking about at the moment.
0: Perhaps in the scientific circles, but I think in the mainstream, everyone thinks, oh, we're, we're moving towards the end.
1: <laughs> yeah, the infectious disease specialists live, you know, they, they, live with, they live with viruses and disease and transmission all the time. Every year we have a flu season. You know, it causes sometimes extreme chaos in the hospital. There are years where, you know, we run out of beds and uh, it, you know, or our ICUs get really full. And, you know, the public doesn't see this very often. doesn't pay a lot of attention. A lot of people think they don't really need a flu shot. You know, so we do live with endemic viruses all the time and society gets comfortable with it. It doesn't pose a a huge risk to the majority of the population. And I think the, you know, we're, we're all just so much more acutely aware of what's going on at the moment. I hope one of the long lessons will be go get vaccinated every year for the vaccines you have an opportunity to protect yourself and protect others with, whether that's a flu vaccine or coronavirus vaccine in the future.
0: And you keep reading also that really for us to get to endemic stage, this is a world effort because it will continue to spread and morph unless we get it under control around the world.
1: Well, that's right. And and also, you know, the more virus out there, the more opportunity for variants. And so it's in our interest to, it's in everyone's interest to reduce infection, reduce transmission, get opportunities for vaccination to the entire world. You know, the idea that we can live in a bubble and and protect ourselves and, you know, try and prevent this from coming across the border really is just about
0: impossible. So, You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network. Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and this is a special COVID-19 edition to launch our third season. And we're speaking with UHN Executive Vice President of Science and Research, Dr. Brad Waters. Brad, the origin of the coronavirus is still highly contentious. There's the Wuhan market theory, the Wuhan lab leak, and Chinese officials are really pushing a theory of their own that it was a U.S. Army lab leak. Needless to say, investigations continue In the meantime, talk to us, though, about just the importance of knowing the origin of COVID-19.
1: Well, that's important, you know, and there are groups that study, you know, the origins of viruses, um, expert groups all all over the world. At the moment, there's just not a lot of data or evidence to, you know, to make any sort of firm conclusions around the the specific origin of this. I think, you know, the experts and the the people that I listen to or or read about, read from, you know, the, the prevailing opinion in that group is that it, this has come from a zoonotic traditional kind of approach where it's jumped from one species into the human population that's uh, the, that's the way that virtually all of these kinds of viruses have reached us and without extraordinary evidence of something else you know the priors of probability would suggest that that's the most likely explanation but it needs evidence and uh, you know it's not there yet everyone's looking and you know it's important to understand that because that's also serves as a potential future route to protection. Obviously, if there was some other source for this, uh, you know, an accident or a leak or something else, we need policies and, and ways to protect us from, you know, anything like that happening. And there are, of course, lots of those in place. And it's extremely unlikely that these things can happen purely by accident, but it's not impossible. And, you know, it's important to open the books and, and you know, quell any rumors of that. But, you know, I don't want to get too much into the You know, there's lots of spin, lots of interpretation, lots of politics uh, that's driving a lot of the discussion and and writings around this.
0: Understood. All right, let's turn to UHN Research and the pioneering work of your team over the course of the pandemic. Perhaps let's start with a trial spearheaded by Dr. Ewan Gallagher and his team. They've just published or recently published, I believe, in the summer of 2021, the potential benefit of blood thinners for hospitalized patients with COVID-19. What can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so it's really terrific work. It's Ewan you know, you Golliger, Patrick Lawler, uh, other colleagues here at UHN and, and some of the team members of theirs uh, across Canada and the University of Manitoba and elsewhere. And what they've done is to launch a, a very large trial, uh, collaborative trial, you know, interesting t- uh, trial design, but done extremely great clinical research where they've asked the question around whether or not it would be possible to improve the outcome of patients who are coming into the hospital with COVID and this was, was with the use of blood thinners so traditional kinds of uh, medication that we have on hand all over the world using heparin you know lots of people use this um, as part of a blood thinning strategy for other diseases and we knew that part of the clinical consequences of giving covid was developing blood clots covid causes blood clots and this contributes to some of the poor outcomes of the disease And so they launched this trial, and they actually created a a large collaborative network or joined a large collaborative network of other trials across the world um, and recruited thousands of patients to this trial so they could answer this question in a robust and statistically meaningful way. And it's really, you know, I think an example of the power of networks and the power of collaboration and the importance of doing really strong clinical research to give us that data so that we can make new clinical decisions. There's been lots of examples of the opposite, you know, small trials, underpowered, poorly designed, has created lots of confusion out there, uh, but this is one of the best trials. And uh, it was published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, two papers, and they tested uh, the use of, of these uh, therapeutic doses of, of heparin, of blood thinners, both in patients that were critically ill in the ICU and also patients with more mild disease. And what they found is that a, a very different response in those two populations. Uh, the drugs are really effective, and they you know they help prevent death uh, while those patients are in the hospital. They help uh, prevent uh, you know other kinds of uh, complications in the mild in, in those with mild disease. And, and you know what? That will change practice all over the world. This will now become a, a part of the, the treatment opportunity for for patients with you know, with COVID. It didn't work in the patients with that were in the ICU that with more severe disease, which is also important because you know every medication also comes with risks. Blood thinners cause a risk of bleeding, and there were patients that you know developed complications from the heparin itself. And so, without this sort of you know really good data, knowing who should get it and who shouldn't get it. You know, you now won't place people at risk of getting that, uh, of, the, of heparin if they can't use it. And this is the kind of data we didn't have, you know, for a lot of the other therapies that were used uh, because we didn't have these strong clinical trials, and, you know, until recently. So this is a real bright spot for Canada. It's a bright spot for, for UHN and, you know, and, and this group. And um, they've changed the way the world will treat COVID patients. So, uh, you know, hats off to them.
0: Yeah, amazing. I should make just a quick note. We are interviewing Dr. Waters from his office downtown at UHN and uh, his office is right outside the UHN emergency. And that's why you're hearing sirens periodically. They're (laughs) not coming for Brad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope not.
0: Another new study, this one from Dr. Deepali Kumar with some welcome news for transplant patients in the COVID vaccine efficacy. Talk to us about that one.
1: Yeah, Dr. Kumar is a, a terrific clinician scientist in our in our uh, Ashmira Transplant Center, um, you know, the largest transplant center in North America now. But she did some work early on, very early on in the pandemic. We may have even talked about it the last time, you know, to look at the prevalence of infection in healthcare workers. And so we launched a large, large study, you know, it had a lot of uh, impact here, looking at, at how many of our workers may be developing asymptomatic uh, infection, something we didn't know at the time. So that was great work. But she's also you know, uh, been focused on providing proper care and protection for transplant patients. These are very vulnerable groups because when someone gets a transplant, a liver transplant or a kidney transplant or other, <clears throat> they often go on immune suppressive medications. And so their immune that's done to prevent rejection of their graft of their organ, um, but it creates a, you know, a risk for them of infectious disease. And it turns out it also makes the vaccine less effective. So these individuals, what they've discovered is that if you were a transplant patient and you're on immunosuppressive medication, you didn't get a very good immune response to getting one dose or two doses, even two doses of the vaccine. They measured this in large numbers of people that they care for. And they saw that those patients had low antibody levels, didn't get a good immune response. And so what they did very early on is to um, is to start a trial, also again, a, you know, a, a terrifically designed and impactful clinical trial, uh, looking at third dose boosters in that population. And what they've seen is that in, you know, not in everyone, but in, uh, in a large number of those patients, that third dose is quite effective. It can boost their response and it can provide a a protection from them that they otherwise don't have, uh, unlike the general population. So this will also change practice. And there's already a lot of discussion around booster shots and, and so on. But again, what, what you need is good clinical data to make those decisions. There's lots of hand-waving. There's countries just doing it already. There's others that say there's no evidence. And so you know science needs to come with the data uh, so that we can make those recommendations and do, do so in a meaningful way.
0: Another groundbreaking piece of work from UHN Research is uh, that of Dr. Angela Chung and Dr. Margaret Herridge on the devastating long-term effects of COVID, which which seems to be now emerging as we're going to, like hospital systems are going to need to respond with new clinics to deal with the long-haul patients. Talk to us about their work.
1: Yeah, also, you know, extremely important work. And this got started very early on too. At the very beginning of the disease, they recognized that it was going to be important to study the consequences of COVID long-term in people who recover. And the vast majority of people who get COVID uh, recover from that disease, fortunately. But not everyone makes a full recovery, as we've learned. And this has been called long COVID or COVID-related, you know, long-term disease, and there's lots of work still to understand what's causing this and what's happening. There's evidence of you know, changes in cognitive function, in neurological changes in the brain, in other organs. There's long-term immune activation in some individuals. We don't m- understand much about the risk factors for this, who might be affected, what might drive that, and also importantly, how we might therapeutically intervene to help those patients. And so that's really, you know, they started with the premise that, that we're going to need to study this. And so they created a cohort study. Again, this is a network study. They have they have colleagues across all of Canada. Uh, they're participating in other international approaches to collectively work on on studying this. And they've uh, entered a large number of people into this research study. They're collecting samples. They're looking at the virus. They're looking at host factors. They're looking at other related comorbidity factors and making samples available to the entire scientific community to, to be able to study this. And, you know, given the number of people that have been infected with COVID and will be infected with COVID uh, is extremely important work on a, you know, go forward basis. So, you know, they've, it's really been a, a, another bright spot for us is, is that work. They've also created COVID, long term COVID clinics. These are both physician scientists. And so not only are they doing research, but they've actually created clinics for people who are suffering to be able to come in and to be you know, cared for and treated. And this is, you know, and be rehabilitated. This is something that we'll also be doing for a long time.
0: Let's touch on one more. And uh, it's not certainly an exhaustive uh, overview of what you have going on at UHN research, but to my mind, this one is really remarkable is the modeling research generated by UHN researchers, Dr. Beata Sander and her team. What's been the impact of her research in shaping government and public health policy in Ontario throughout the pandemic?
1: Yeah, so there's been terrific work. Uh, Dr. Sanders uh, sits on the science um, table that we've uh, heard a lot about here in Ontario. Uh, It's an independent table that has advised the government, has advised Ontarians, and is focused on the science. And, you know, as I've talked about here multiple times, you know, when we make decisions and policy that in- impact, you know, millions of people, we want to base that on very, very solid ideas around what to expect and, and based on science and data. And that's where she, uh, Beata works. That's what she does. She looks at uh, resource you know, utilization, modeling predictions, understanding, you know, what those waves look like, how much transmission is happening, um, and gives us that short-term, long-term, and medium-term evidence around what we expect to be coming. And so that started off you know, around issues around PPE. Was Ontario going to run out of personal protective equipment? Was it going to run out of ventilators? Or were we going to run out of hospital beds? And a lot of that work stimulated the, the province to come together and to work in a, an extremely coordinated way to make resources available collectively. And, for, and throughout the entire pandemic, you know, over the last six to eight months, we have been operating almost like a single hospital system where, you know, if one hospital was full, patients were being moved to another, There was coordinated, there were patient transfers every day. We expanded ICU capacity based on that modeling. So we were ready when the third wave hit and when our you know, ICU levels went way up, uh, we were ready in Ontario and we got close to running out, but we didn't. And a lot of that is based on you know that strong scientific modeling that Beata and her colleagues contributed to that helped get Ontario ready and, and has helped do that. So it's been ex- you know extremely important for functions of hospitals, for the safety of, of the province, and for us being able to respond uh, collectively to to deal with the with the waves as as they've come through.
0: It, would it be fair to say part of the legacy of her work is that it saved lives? Ontarian lives during the pandemic?
1: Absolutely. And not just lives with COVID. You know, when hospitals get full and ICUs get full, uh, that affects everybody. And um, it needs needs to use those those resources. So it has undoubtedly saved lives of countless numbers of individuals in the province.
0: Your team at UHN Research has so much going on, especially in terms of COVID trials and investigations. We, of course, can't get to all of them today can you help us if if our listeners want to find out more where can they go
1: well they can come and visit us at our website uhnresearch.ca uh, uh, our annual report will be there we're going to highlight a lot of the uh, activity and work that's gone on here over the last year uh, in covid as well as the other amazing uh, scientific contributions that we make across all the areas that that we're working in and none of this has has shut down you know over the last year it's we've been interrupted and uh, we've had labs close and open and trials close and open, but uh, we've got an amazing group of 5,000 researchers at UHN that are committed to making impact in the areas that they've dedicated their lives to, and, and that hasn't stopped. And you know, a lot of great science, even uh, you know, outside of what we're talking about at COVID, has continued to happen here at UHN.
0: You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network. Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and this is a special COVID-19 edition to kick off our third season of the podcast, featuring UHN Executive Vice President of Science and Research, Dr. Brad Waters. We should make mention that UHN's pioneering research, including the COVID-19 initiatives we've been talking about, received much needed support from the UHN Foundation, and the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, which together raise over $250 million a year in funding for medical research driven by UHN scientists. And maybe, Brad, as a quick example, I know foundation dollars played a role in a recent research discovery over at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Talk to us about the impact it had on Dr. Daniel DiCarvello's work to bring forward a blood test for diagnosing cancer. Yeah,
1: well, our, you know, our foundations and our philanthropic supporters in our community are needed and, and are responsible for really all of the research that we do. We wouldn't be able to do any of the research we do without this community. And, you know, the, our foundations and our, and our community of supporters really did step up very early and allowed us to get started in, in new areas of COVID research very quickly. And they fund... All areas of research, including what you mentioned uh, at the Princess Margaret, and, and you know, and as I said, we haven't slowed down in, in terms of uh, research and discovery across all the areas where where, where we're actively working. And, and Daniel's work um, published uh, recently this year yeah. has now been translated through the creation of a startup company, you know, to move this into patients. And it's really exciting work. It's work that has allowed for the development of what could become sort of a universal blood test for finding cancer early. Turns out, you know, when you have cancer, some of that DNA from those cancer cells spills out into your blood and there are signature markers in that dna epigenetic marks this is the area of work where where daniel uh spends his uh his scientific uh time and he's developed a way to use that little signature that epigenetic signature to search in the blood which is full of dna from all over the place kind of find that needle in the haystack and and evidence that there might be an early cancer there. And this is a big, exciting area overall for Princess Margaret, where earlier detection, earlier diagnosis of disease, and earlier identification of those who might not respond to therapy uh, is in a very important area to help improve outcomes going forward in the future. So this has been spun out into a company. They've announced a an investment of over sixty million dollars into the company. Really exciting team they put together, and so we're we're really excited to see that uh, now move quickly to clinical uh, opportunity and impact on patients.
0: Let's mention the company name.
1: The company's called Adela. Um, and it's you spell that? Adela, A D E L A, I think. And uh, it's a UHN spinout. is one of, you know, uh, it's an area that we've taken a very active role in over the last five to six years in, in commercialization. And, you know, we recognize we need commercial partners and other investors to, to move our discoveries into clinical impact. And so that's why we do that. And this is a one in a series of uh, exciting new uh, spin outs and commercial startups that uh, that we've been involved with over the over the past decade and have a big commitment to continue to do this going forward.
0: Okay, final theme of the show, I want to broaden the conversation to the profile of medical research in this country. If there's a silver lining in this pandemic, it's that it heightened public, the public awareness of science and research beyond anything I imagine you've experienced in your career. You've actually spoken about how this is likely a once-in-a-generational opportunity. How so?
1: Well, it's I did, and you know I think the attention that COVID has had in the general press and in media and social media and in conversation circles. I'm sure this is what you talk about when you have a chance to see your friends on the patio or in the backyard. It really has gathered the attention of, of the world because of the impact it's having, and the world has also had the opportunity to see the impact of science in a very overt objective way and they've seen some of the messiness behind science too you know the failures the starts and stops you know how progress gets made and they've been in you know the uh, opportunities to, to sort of even see the scientific pro, uh, process play out publications and corrections and and new publications happen and you know what's been very different is that you know this isn't so different from the science perspective this is the way science happens all the time but it's the media attention on it. And when a preprint paper ends up on the front page of the New York Times, that's not a normal situation, but it happens all the time now. And so that's, you know, I think it's an opportunity for, for us to advocate and to, you know, highlight the, the importance that investment in research has on solving society's most important problems. Today, it's COVID, but we have a lot of them. And science is the, is the engine to address that. It creates economic impact it creates jobs in canada it creates industry and it improves health and well-being of our of our citizens which is so critical to all other aspects of society and 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 economic life and so you know it's an opportunity to i think double down on that canada should be investing more than it is we have opportunity to do a a lot more than we are i think we've, we've seen some deficiencies and and Consequences of underinvestment in Canada. You know, we didn't have uh, manufacturing in Canada. We didn't have the pharma companies to partner with in Canada. Uh, we had to rely on buying those vaccines from from other countries. Even though, you know, as I talked about, uh, some of those important early discoveries were made by Canadians. So this is an opportunity, and you know, I think it's it's up to all of society to to decide to, to want to make that investment. And you know, for this to be an important part about who we choose to govern the country and the expectations we have on, on the federal government. I, I think you know, having scientists develop that relationship with society, with individuals, to continue to highlight the importance of, of what we do and the impact it has and, and keeping that attention on the front page. I think that's a, that's a lesson for us and an opportunity for everyone for the future.
0: Well, one thing I remember reading from you uh, a while back is that what the pandemic has done is is, is sort of brought you uh, research out of the shadows and made people understand how integrally intertwined it is with day-to-day healthcare. It's, the two are symbiotic, really. But you've also said that you fear that this public profile that's been raised of the role of medical research uh, in society won't last.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, we all worry about that. And, you know, even around pandemic Preparedness in general, the importance of research, the importance of Uh, investing—it's got a lot of attention now. But I I do worry it will wane um, once the real, you know, uh, risk of of an impact of disease and so on also wanes. We've seen we've seen those mistakes happen in the past when SARS hit many years ago. We had an initial pandemic preparedness, and then it you know, it lost attention, it stopped getting funding, it stopped underinvestment, And we've seen challenges even in our own public health systems and the coordination and the lack of data and and so on that has created challenges right now for us. And this has been also in large part because of an underinvestment and, you know, a lack of, of recognition of the importance that this investment creates when it's needed. So, um, i i do worry about that and it's something that i think uh it's upon all of us to work towards ensuring uh, that doesn't happen or you know it's at least minimized
0: well to that end are your fears perhaps a bit dissipated uh after i guess it was in the spring of 2021 in may parliament created a standing committee on science and research does, does that now give medical research a, a seat at the table so to
1: speak yeah that's a positive outcome for sure we need to be competitive globally, and uh, that takes attention and investment. And, and certainly, that's uh, that's great to
0: see. Last word, then, Brett. How do you and your colleagues in the scientific world across Canada continue this momentum, this this profile?
1: Well, you know, I, as I talked about, I think a lot of the you know real discoveries and in, in impact we've had has been through the partnerships and networks. And uh, I think you know uh, many of those that are gotten started during COVID we'll continue and we'll work hard to to do that. We're going to work with our colleagues across Toronto at the University of Toronto on pandemic uh, preparedness and responses. We want to be part of that. But the other part, you know, and and many of the discoveries that we made have come from having in place, you know, such a strong scientific team. We didn't have a single COVID researcher before COVID, (laughs) obviously. But we had cardiologists, we had anesthesiologists, we had cancer biologists, we had infectious disease specialists, we had neurologists, we had uh, public health uh, policy experts, um, and all of these people contributed to the science and understanding and impact of research that's had on on COVID. And it's a reflection of the strength of investment in research in general. I gave an individual a grant to study how to tune out uh, immune responses to RNA. They never envisaged that they were going to use this to solve uh, a COVID global crisis. So it's, you can't predict the impact that science will have. It's uh, you know, investing in great people, in, in smart uh, people, and in areas where there's unmet clinical need. That's what we're going to continue to do.
0: Dr. Brad Waters, Executive Vice President of UHN Research. Thanks for speaking with us and continued success. Thank you, Christian. For more on the podcast, go to our website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca, and let us know what you think. We love to hear from you. That's a wrap for this special edition to kick off Season 3 of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Thanks for listening.